How is it going there, folks? Welcome to another episode of This Week in Liberpods. I am your host, as always, Nikki P, here with five new shots of Libertarian Podcast for your ear holes. This week, we're going to start out with the Big L Podcast, hosted by Karen Ann Harlos, the... What is that she calls herself? The Pink Flame of Liberty? Something like that? It's good branding. I'll give her that. At any rate, she uh, does some insider baseball on the Libertarian Party. Let's uh, see what she's got in this week's episode. Other ends without their consent. Individuals are inviolable. Amen and amen. I would like in the future to get into just a little bit of a discussion of anarchy state and utopia a bit further, because I believe, as I mentioned before, when I was still a minarchist holding on to that last desperate grasp to justify a state, when I was starting to find the anarchist arguments very convincing. I had known there was this holy grail out there. There was this book that was the ultimate defense, and this book was going to be my savior. So I read it, and it had the exact opposite effect. While I admire Nozick, as you can tell, I hope, by how often I mention him tremendously, I do not think he succeeded in justifying an ultra-minimal state, and Nozick basically made me an anarchist, or at least freed me, or freed isn't even the right word. It, it took away the last life preserver to hold on to menarchy, because I read what was supposedly, you know, the gold standard in refuting anarchy without using straw men. In fact, it you know, it strongmanned the argument, and it just simply did not convince me. And I'm actually somewhat convinced that most people that hold this book out, um, some particularly belligerent minarchists that I'm thinking of, um, the way they hold it out makes me suspect that they have not read it. So now after that somewhat not somewhat, actually, um, lengthy prelude, we're getting into the new material to continue on with the points from the Radical Caucus. So the two things we will be dealing with today, and I would have loved to have broken them up into separate episodes, but they go hand in hand. It's impossible to separate them, at least I believe, are the, the points of radical abolitionism and principled populism. So, let me read those points as they are articulated by the Radical Caucus. Radical abolitionism. As the word radical means going to the root of something, radical libertarians should not merely propose small changes to the status quo and debate the fine points of government policy with the opponents of freedom. Instead, libertarians must always make clear that the outright removal of the injustice and interference of the state is our ultimate goal. Speaking from our basic principles avoids the quagmire of self-imposed obligatory gradualism. Rather than offering compromise, we should demand what we really seek, a free society, and let our opponents offer the compromise. And principled populism. The Libertarian Party should be a mass participation party operating in the electoral arena and elsewhere. 
devoted to consistent libertarian principle and committed to liberty and justice for all. The Libertarian Party should trust in and rely on individuals to welcome a program of liberty and justice and should always aim to convince people of the soundness of libertarian principles. Simply repeating our basic principles and not proposing transition measures is ineffective in the short run because only a small part of the populace is interested in liberty in the abstract, and hiding or abandoning our principled positions is ineffective in the long run because it fails to sustain us as a movement and attract and retain new libertarians. And their their summary of those two points is the Libertarian Party is the only political party that traditionally advocates for real freedom from government. We should emphasize this revolutionary approach rather than watering it down with uninspiring language that is a de facto endorsement of the status quo. Our language should inspire by reflecting our goals, not the compromises we may have to accept on the way to gaining them. The Libertarian Party should be active in all areas of the political sphere with the expectation that individuals who hear and understand our message of freedom and the steps we can take today to increase liberty will choose to join enthusiastically in our journey. The fact that we have not followed those core principles is why we are not. So does anyone else hear the word radical and immediately think Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Maybe I'm just aging myself with that one. At any rate, I think that was a fine, fine addition to the This Week in Liberpods lineup. Maybe it wasn't your thing. Maybe technology is your thing. And looking out into the future. Well, you're luck if that's the case. Our next clip is actually from Building Tomorrow, one of the fine podcasts over at libertarianism.org. This particular one focusing on... Well, some of the big ideas and big technology advancements that are coming along down the pipeline. Let's see what they got with us today. Well, so that maybe that brings up the, the follow-up question, which is why does this matter? Right? So like if we're if we're setting out to build mines, presumably we're doing that in order to accomplish something. It might just be, you know, to see if we can, but we're building them, you know, Google's building an AI so that I can wake up in the morning and ask it what the weather is going to be. And as long as it can tell me accurately what the weather is going to be and engage in a convincing conversation, why does it matter if it's conscious or not? As long as all the, I guess, the outward signs look to me like consciousness, so I'm comfortable talking to it. So think about the human future. So if humans merge with AI the way that people like Elon Musk and Ray Kurzweil envision, then if machines can't be conscious, post-humans, i.e. humans who've merged, wouldn't be conscious beings. They wouldn't really have minds at all. So what we would be doing with our technology is extinguishing consciousness from homo sapiens and changing. I mean, we would no longer even technically be homo sapiens. Um, but I mean, those post-human beings wouldn't, in a sense, be an improvement on us. It wouldn't feel like anything to be them, even if they're vastly smarter than we are. So we have to think about what we value. Um, I mean, 
without consciousness, it won't feel like anything to be ultra smart. Um, nothing would really matter to a being that isn't sentient. So machine consciousness is ultra important when it comes to questions about the proper use of artificial intelligence technology. Like, do we want to merge with machines? It's also important in understanding the AIs that we create, even setting aside the human brain. So if we're creating ultra-sophisticated AIs, and some of them look human, like take the Japanese androids, for example, that are being developed to take care of the elderly in Japan, the public is going to assume they're conscious because they look human, right? I call this the cute and fluffy fallacy, <laughs> right? If it's cute, if it's fluffy, oh, it's got to feel like something to be those creatures. And that, of course, makes a lot of sense in the biological domain, right? But we're talking about artifacts. So if we decide that a certain group of AIs, maybe the cute AIs, if you will, the fluffy AIs, they're conscious, then we're giving them rights, special legal consideration that conscious beings get. Well, their trade-off with other conscious beings in all sorts of cases, right? Like consider trolley problems. <laughs> you know, so we're going to be sacrificing humans in certain contexts for AIs that we think are conscious, but oops, we made a mistake, they're not. So I think we really carefully need to investigate the question of machine consciousness because androids that already look human are under development and people will be duped. Issues is absolutely key no matter what moral system you have. And, you know, there have been thinkers like Peter Singer in the context of animal liberation who have rightly pointed out that if an animal is sentient, we have special obligations. So that's why I raise the issue of machine consciousness as being so central because it's really a question of what the class looks like when it comes to sentient beings. Would AI be in it? And would we be in it if we altered our brains, if we took out uh, parts of our brains responsible for conscious experience and replaced them with microchips, would we even be in that class? I wonder about the the psychology of this because we can so we can take I wonder what they were smoking to have that conversation. Perhaps nothing. Perhaps they took a oh few little grams of something anyways i'm a big fan of that podcast because they get into some odd odd thoughts our next podcast is going to be a clip from the free man beyond the wall podcast it's a apparently popular one hosted by pete quinones and let's see what he's getting into here talking about the social contract today this one ought to be fun I think one of the interesting things about people who throw around the term social contract is that, you know, if you ask them about any contract that they've ever signed, you know, it, whether yeah. it be, you know, say they're renting, renting a house and they have to sign a contract, there are explicit rules on there. There, there are steps to get out of it. There are penalties for getting out of it. Um, there's always a way to get out of a contract. Um, yeah. But both sides always have 
obligations yeah. that must be yeah. carried out. Um, you know, the yeah. the whole thing about the state protects the citizens, that part of it, it's like the, the courts have judged, you know, just one that I always talk about, Warren versus District of Columbia, 1981, the police have no right to protect you. No obligation to yeah, protect no you. Obliga- yeah. I'm sorry, no obligation. You're correct. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's... And then you throw that out there, and it's like, well, I know a police officer. And and you just get into the... They start <laughs> trying to go away from the whole, you know, what is a contract, and then it gets into yeah. feels and things like that, so... Yeah, so, you know, when I say this doesn't satisfy the conditions of any normal contract, right? Um, in contract law, it's like it's undisputed as part of contract law that if you have a contract both parties have an obligation to the other if one party reneges then the other party doesn't have to do their part either um so okay so the the state should have some obligation to the citizens traditionally the obligation is supposed to be to protect them from criminals some people think there are additional obligations okay but if they have any obligation at all then you should be able to ask so what happens if they don't satisfy it and in any other context everyone would agree if you break the contract you have to pay compensation the the other party might get out of the contract or something like that okay so what happens if the government doesn't protect you so if there is a social contract that violates it so then the government at minimum has to pay compensation but of course as you as you pointed out they do not right and there are multiple cases right um starting with the Warren case but there's multiple other cases where people tried to sue the government for not doing their job right for not doing the government's job and um, the courts just go no the government doesn't have to do anything right <laughs> like they they don't have to protect you right so like in that in the Warren versus District of Columbia case um, these women called the police because someone was breaking into their house right and um, basically just the police never, came to help, right? They called twice. Um, and then the women were beaten, robbed, and raped because um, the cops never came to protect them. Right? And like there was a long time, there's a long period of time during which the cops could have come and helped. Um, and then the courts just said, yeah, but you can't sue the police because they don't have an obligation to protect you in the first place. Okay, now, and, you know, you might just think, oh, so that was an incorrect decision on the part of the court. But the thing is, like, the court is an arm of the government. So that means that the, the government's own position is that they don't accept an, any obligation to the individual. And if you're, in the, if you're in an alleged contract and the other party says, I'm not accepting any obligation to you, that means that you don't have to accept any obligation to them. And so, so we wouldn't have any obligation to obey the state. You'd said in the book that there is no way of opting out of the social contract without giving up things one has a right to. Can you explain yeah. what you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, you can take hypothetical examples involving like, you know, contracts in ordinary circumstances or a- agreements in ordinary circumstances. So uh, you're working for this company and, you know, the, the, um, uh, company manager says, "Hey, okay, we're going to have a meeting, you know, next Wednesday at nine o'clock, right? Does everyone agree? And you know, if you don't say anything, maybe that could be taken as agreement. Okay, but imagine that the manager says, "Okay, so if you don't agree, please signal that by cutting off your left arm, 
that's the only thing that's the only thing that I will accept as a way of signaling that you don't agree with my proposal. Okay, that's not valid, right? So I can't declare that, you know, to not it doesn't matter what the what the thing is, right? I can't declare that in order to not agree with some proposal I'm making, you have to cut off your arm. Um, Who, boy, getting hot and heavy with that philosophy. Or is that legalese? I don't know what that was. But that was one hell of a podcast. So coming up next, we actually have the Free Thoughts podcast. You got a free man above the wall or free man beyond the wall. I don't know. I didn't watch that TV show. But Free Thoughts is another fine podcast from over at libertarianism.org. And this particular one, I think they talk philosophy. Uh, This particular one, they're talking about some dude I've never heard of. It's very interesting. I was thoroughly engaged hearing somebody talk about someone I don't know, I've never heard of. Maybe you'll be engaged as well. So have a listen. Let's see where we go. What about freedom to choose stuff that is anti-science? Like vaccination, vaccination. Well, that or or so it's it's one thing to say like we need epistemic humility to because we don't know ultimate truth and we're all trying to move towards it or epistemic humility and the the rights and kind of tolerance of other behavior that goes along with it is the way that we approach that truth. But lots of things that lots of people do don't seem to be aimed at moving in the direction of ultimate truth or they seem to be based in outright rejection of even if we don't know ultimate truth we know like a handful of like sub ultimate truths and people aim in very different directions from those how do you account in this particular view of toleration and humility and rights for justifying people going in the opposite direction that that science and Bernofsky thinks we should be going you know, he never really addressed that subject precisely that I know of, but I, th- I, I think his answer would have been people have that that right, but then at the same time being a, a believer in rational economic planning, I think he would have nevertheless probably curtailed it in some ways. Uh, you mentioned vaccines, for example. I think he probably would have said that it's acceptable for the state to mandate vaccines, and he would have said because it's the right – it's simply the right it's correct true. answer. Yeah. <laughs> um and whatever whatever concerns we might have about that, I think Bernofsky recognized that the that that wouldn't really solve the problem anyway. Forcing people to be rational obviously is not going to accomplish anything. So he very much put his effort into the idea of educating the public, and this was a very big preoccupation of his career. In 1940s, in 1946, he made his first broadcast on the radio um, in a presentation about the atomic bomb. And it was such a success that he became very quickly a a public celebrity spokesman for science on a television show, first a radio show, then a television show called Brains Trust. And he became such a celebrity in Great Britain as a spokesman for science that he even is mentioned in a Monty Python routine. Um, in the exploding penguin, when this penguin appears on top of the television, and these the two ladies are talking back and forth, and one says, "Why is there a penguin on top of the telly?" And the other says, "How do I know? I'm not Doctor Bloody Bronowski." <laughs> so, uh, so he became a huge name in Great Britain. In the United States, unfortunately, the Ascent of Man premiered like a year after he had died. So, right when he was on the cusp of becoming a, a major celebrity in the United States, he was already gone. So that didn't happen for him. But that would be, would I think have been his answer? Is that 
forcing people to do it isn't going to accomplish anything. It has to be done through public education, and the and it's the responsibility of scientists in particular to go out there and teach the public not just the findings of science, but the techniques of science and the the rational secular mindset that underlies science, and that the future of the human race depends on their ability to achieve that. He was especially concerned in the late 60s with the rise of the hippie movement, which he saw as a proto-fascist movement. Ranofsky thought that the hippies were basically along the same lines as the pre-Nazi movement that he had witnessed personally in Germany in the 1930s. Can, can you expand on that Fascist a bit? Because that's, I mean, uh, many of us have our problems with hippies, but that's not typically a, yeah. a I like critique. The, I like the phrase fascist hippies, and we should put that in the band name column, too. That's, that's a good band name. <laughs> that would be a great name for a band. But Bronowski was very concerned about it for just that reason. He thought that the hippies were an anti-rational, anti-progress, pro-tribal, pro-primitivist movement, and that that was precisely the, what he had seen in the early wave of what became the, hip, or the, the Nazi movement in Germany. Bronowski, all his life, saw this sort of conflict, this perpetual conflict between, on one hand, the traditionalist perspective that was believed that man should not change the values that he had come to know through religion and tradition, and on the other hand, this belief in progress, scientific planning, and discovery. And it, I, I sort of suspect that he's, he discovered this in his own family life. His father was an Orthodox Jew. His mother was an atheist member of the Communist Party. So I think that he saw that, that clash not only in, in history, but in his own personal life. But of course, he certainly saw it during the Spanish Civil War and then World War II, and then he saw it reviving again in the 1960s that the hippie movement was a reactionary movement against technology and progress and in favor of basically tribal primitivism and that it was only a short step from there to burning books and destroying the, the scientific progress of man. We've mentioned the... As somebody who hosts the Liberty Hippie Podcast Network, I feel as though I should be offended horribly by that conversation. How dare they talk about my people that way? Anyways, I thought it was a good podcast. Coming up next, we have the Brian Nichols Show. It's part of the We're Libertarians crew, I believe. I see like he's somewhere tied in there. So let's give him a look and see what he's talking about today. Because like I'm seeing very similar parallels, much to what we saw back in February of 2018 in the the shootings in uh, in Florida with David Hogg pretty much taking over this entire you know anti-gun movement and using the sensationalist you know narrative that was being promoted from using a tragedy more or less to then try to, to use kids as a means to promote a political or policy-driven change. And I mean, I myself, like, I don't care what people's positions are on either, you know, guns or climate change or, or you name the, the hot-button issue, but to see there's such a pointed effort by those people in power right now that are adults, and they're using kids as pawns to promote a political agenda. I mean, it, I don't know how anybody on the left can look at this and say, oh, this is a great thing. Like, this just feels icky all well, over it. Yeah, because it... It, what is important to the left is getting the power. That's all they care. They don't care what they have to say, what they have to do, who they have to kiss to get it. They want the power. That's what the game is all about. And it's unfortunate that 
you know, most people are just kind of unaware of this, and, and, and they think, oh, this is an honest disagreement. No, <laughs> there's no honest disagreement going on. They are trying to stampede us, and they've tried everything. You know, Al Gore tried his movie. There have been a million other attempts. Now they have, uh, you know, Greta coming to America, all trying to stampede us into some sort of global, well, at least a, a, a national climate regime. You know, the, you know, places like France and China and Russia and Germany, they'd like to see the U.S. crippled with climate regulation. And we, under President Obama, we were well on our way there. We absolutely were. But yeah, and then this is the part that astonishes me, right, is that I see a, a great number of folks more in the Republican conservative camp who maybe aren't on board 100% with man-made climate change, but they're at least starting to listen to the argument. So I'll give you an example. I mean, Ben Shapiro, for all the things he does a lot well, I mean, this is one thing, I forget which Sunday um, special it was, but he had a guest on his show, and basically he conceded, yes, we're having climate change taking place, and yes, humans are, you know, a, a main proponent, a main cause of this. And even 10 years ago, that was not an argument that I really heard anybody on the right making. And actually, it's funny. There's um, well, a libertarian thinker named Michael Malice. He has a, an expression that a lot of times conservatism is just liberalism driving the speed limit. Um, so is, is, is it just that the left is is so far ahead of where the right is that they're just trying to keep up now? Or is there something that's happened that people are starting to like say, oh, maybe this is actually something we should look at? Well, I like Ben Shapiro, but I mean, yeah. You know, everybody says they care about the environment, but few people really want to take the time to learn anything about it. And so I'm afraid that he's just been stampeded into saying that, you know, I mean, climate change, I mean, it's true climate change has always been happening, always will happen, but it happens at a pace that's not really discernible to anybody. Do humans have an impact on climate? Well, of course, all you need to do is look at your evening weather map and you'll see that urban areas are warmer and rural areas are cooler. Mm-hmm. But, but that's not really, you know, when, when he starts talking about those, he's not really qualifying them like I just did. He is kind of, he's buying into the narrative and just looking for some, you know, non-communist way of, <laughs> of, of controlling the climate, which is impossible. There's, and, 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 and you know, uh, he, he's just being a useful idiot for the left. And I know that there are a lot of Republicans that feel this way. You know, but as I said, everyone cares about the environment. No one wants, no one wants to learn anything about it. Republicans, they're, they're terrible on it. And I, you know, I can kind of understand why. I mean, you know, there's science and math and economics, as well as politics and the environment. Then you have air pollution and water pollution and chemicals and toxic waste. I mean, it's all these different topics. And it really... You know, it takes time. I've been working on this for 30 years, um, and a few people have that kind of background. So I kind of understand no one knows what they're talking about, but I wish they would just say, yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. Well, and let's, let's kind of look at the people right now who they think they know. Junkscience.com. I'm going to have to remember that one. That sounds like something I should, uh, I should have in the old speed dial. Is that what we do? Nope, that's anachronistic. Anyways, folks, thank you so much for hanging out with me today yet again. This has been episode number 10, so that means we've gone through, what, 50 podcasts? We've featured 50 libertarian podcasts so far. And you haven't found a single one that's your favorite yet? I think you're lying. I think you have a favorite. So, anyways, if you'd like to be a friend of the show, head on over to liberpods.com. 
uh, suggest podcasts that you think we should feature on here because I'm not everywhere on the internet. Uh, if you'd like to get more information, you can check us out on Facebook. Uh, just kind of generally around. Uh, this whole thing is so that we can grow the movement, get the voices into the ears that they need to be into. Because you know what? Not everyone is a fan of every podcast. But you might know somebody who is a fan of it. And the cl- quicker we can get people to the voices that need to hear them, the quicker we can all find liberty. So, as always, this is Nikki P. Have yourselves a good one, folks. Peace. Peace.